Welcome to Onco Farm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm an associate professor of pharmacy practice here at the supporting sponsor of Onco Farm, the Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy. It's January 28th as I record this. should come out tomorrow on the 29th, which is one of the greatest days of the year. Uh, today I'm going to talk about a new drug approval. I've got a stack of papers I'd love to discuss on the pod, but uh, we keep getting new drugs approved here in the United States. So I'm going to talk about the latest FDA approval for a new chemical entity for uh, cancer patients. On January 23rd, the FDA approved Tezemetostat, which is, I think, how I'm going to say this. Um, you could also say Taze Me to Stat. I kind of I remember to spell it if I was going to PubMed it, Taze Me to Stat. But I think people are going to say tezemetostat, which sounds nice, almost like abiraterone, which is one of my favorite drugs to say. Anyway, uh, this received an accelerated approval. Um, that means it's based on uh, surrogate endpoint, in this case response rate, and is contingent upon a confirmatory approval, or it should be. Uh, and this is for patients, uh, both children and adult, although we're talking 16 and up, so not a huge chunk of the pediatric population, 16 and up with metastatic or unresectable epithelioid sarcoma. Uh, I have probably heard of epithelioid sarcoma in the past, but it's not something uh, that I can say for sure that I've uh, heard of. It is a rare tumor. Um, It is um, classified by the WHO as, in their sarcoma classifications, as a, quote, tumor of uncertain differentiation. So it's a soft tissue sarcoma, uh, often characterized by a loss of INI-1 activity, either due to deletion of the gene, inactivation of the gene, uh, or some mutation. And INI1 is, think of it as a tumor suppressor gene. Uh, Now these are often slow-growing tumors, often found in younger patients with roughly a 2 to 1 male to female prevalence, uh, usually in the distal extremity. So fingers, toes, lower legs, lower limbs. There's some case reports out there of epithelial sarcoma of the vulva and the penis, so in some odd locations as well. Now, INI1 is also known as SMARCB1, and that is part of this large protein complex that's involved in uh, chromatin remodeling and also has a function as a tumor suppressor gene in certain situations. Um, So loss of INI1 leads to increased EZH2 activity, and EZH2 then acts as an oncogene by silencing other gene expression, Um, and EZH2 is a histone methyltransferase, so we're talking about epigenetics here. Uh, so guess how tezemetostat uh, uh, works? It's an EZHT, uh, EZH2 inhibitor, EZH2, that's tezemetostat. Uh, and you can kind of maybe see that there's a ZE EZH2 inhibitor, tezemetostat. Um, we'll talk about uh, the efficacy kind of at the end, but just first and foremost, the dose here is 800 milligrams a day, um, PO, sorry, 800 milligrams PO twice a day, not 800 milligrams a day, but 800 PO per dose twice a day. It's going to be uh, available in 200 milligram tablets, so we're talking four tablets a dose, eight tablets a day, fairly high um, uh, pill burden, and it can be taken without regard uh, to meals. It is a CYP3A4 substrate, so it has the typical CYP3A4 drug interactions that we worry about. So potent inhibitors, potent inducers uh, may require dose adjustments of tezemetostat. It's also a P-glycoprotein substrate. Uh, It is uh, a weak or appears to be a weak CYP3A4 inducer. Decreases the exposure of midazolam by 40%. So uh, a weak inducer, and the PI actually recommends uh, or notes that 
um, it decreases the exposure of oral contraceptives and other 304 substrates, and there are drug interactions there to worry about. It also appears to be a weak inhibitor of CYP2C8, which causes an 80% increase in exposure to one of the standard CYP2C8 probes, which is repaglinide. Uh, so that's kind of you know the basics of the drug at least as far as we know right now. Um, we only we don't have a ton of information uh, about it. Uh, as far as warnings precautions, kind of a short list in terms of new drugs that have been approved lately. So secondary malignancies, which you might expect if you're playing around with silencing gene expression. So uh, AML or MDS was seen in 0.6% of patients uh, given this drug, uh, and these are given to a lot of patients with soft tissue sarcoma. Maybe they've received doxorubicin in the past. Uh, so that's notable. And then embryo-fetal toxicity, and that's something that we assume kind of in all, um, uh, a potential issue in all antineoplastics. I think it's notable here, given that this is a disease that often affects younger patients. You can find whole studies of epithelioid sarcoma just in pediatric patients. Uh, so this is a drug that very well can be given to, to men and women of childbearing potential, well, women of childbearing potential, but younger patients uh, and these uh, young females may be taking oral contraceptives, which might not be as effective because of a possible drug interaction with tezemetostat. So I think that's uh, notable. And the other toxicities, uh, fairly mild uh, compared to other drugs. Pain, 52%. 7% of this pain was grade 3 or 4. This is really where it's really hard to evalu evaluate toxicity in a single arm study with no comparator. Uh, the pain very well could be due to the disease getting worse or the disease not improving. Hard to tell. Fatigue, 47%, nausea and vomiting, 34% and 24% respectively. None of that in grade three or four. I love this. Constipation, 21%. Let's just round that to 20. Diarrhea, 16%. Round that to 20. So about the same amount of constipation and diarrhea. So does the drug really do it? Who knows? Uh, decreased appetite in 26% and decreased weight in 16%. Hemorrhage at 18%. 3.4% of those hemorrhagic events were grade 3 or 4. Uh, not very myelosuppressive, and what myelosuppression we do see seems to be some mild anemia, which was or a decrease in hemoglobin seen in about 50%, only 15% of that uh, being grade 3 or 4. Uh, no grade 3 or 4 leukopenia, uh, and just 13% lymphopenia uh, that was serious. So zero uh, serious grade 3 or 4 leukopenia, but there was some uh, severe lymphopenia. Now, as far as efficacy, and I'll use that in quotes since this is a single-arm study. It's really not a single-arm study. It's part of a basket study looking specifically at malignancies with INI1 loss. And then, so they gather up all these patients with INI1 loss, and they put them in different cohorts based on uh, their diagnosis. So cohort five was the epithelioid sarcoma. There were seven total cohorts. Uh, 62 were in cohort five, uh, three quarters white, 63% male, which is almost a two to one male to female ratio. And the median age was 34. So when you look at the younger age here, age 34, uh, you look at, um, the male to female predominance, you know, this looks kind of like what you would expect from the epithelioid sarcoma study. 77% uh, had prior surgery. Again, this is the contingency in the approval is that patients are not uh, candidates for complete resection of their disease because it is a soft, soft tissue sarcoma. Drugs don't work all that well. So surgery is the most important part of it. Uh, so three quarters or so had prior surgery. 61% had prior systemic therapy, which means some of these folks, like four to 10, uh, this is their first time they're being treated for this in an investigational study. Uh, again, the, the total response rate was 15%. Only one patient had a complete response, so a 1.6% complete response rate. Uh, and so we're talking 9 out of 62 people had a response. One CR, 
eight people with partial response. The response duration of longer than six months was 67%, so that's six out of nine who had the response. The response lasted for at least six months. Again, short follow-up, not a whole lot to know in the, in the grand scheme of things with, uh, you know, I have not commented a ton on the, the lax approval standards for the FDA, but this is really an unimpressive response rate, especially with regards to some of the drugs we've talked about just in calendar year 2020, it seems like, uh, on this podcast. Um, however, I, I am going to give some credit. Um, 62 is a small number for any drug approval, but probably not a small number for a pure epithelioid sarcoma study. Uh, this is a rare tumor. If you look in any uh, large soft tissue sarcoma study, if you can get a couple hundred patients in a soft tissue sarcoma, you're probably not going to see the words epithelioid sarcoma in that paper. Uh, if there are patients with epithelioid sarcoma on that study, it's going to be reported in the um, you know other sarcoma category in patient demographics or sarcoma NOS, not otherwise specified. So that is uh, tizemdostat, uh, but you've got some time here. I'm only at, I'm only at 10 minutes. Let's talk about something else. Okay. So, uh, what else could I tell you? Oh, let's see. ASCO GI, uh, 2020, uh, wrapped up recently and, uh, several, several things caught my eye. Uh, but, uh, I'd like to see some of that stuff published before, uh, it's pod worthy. Uh, but there was one thing that, that caught my eye that a couple people tweeted that was about, uh, bacteria causing resistance to gemcitabine in pancreatic cancer. Uh, and there were some nice images that I saw on Twitter. And this comes back to an article published in Science in 2017. So let's take a few minutes and look at this. So this is by uh, Geller and colleagues in Cancer, uh, or in Science, uh, in September 15 of 2017. And so uh, the title of this is Potential Role of Intratumor Bacteria in Mediating uh, Tumor Resistance to the Chemotherapy chemotherapeutic drug, gemcitabine. So the idea here is that bacteria can produce cytidine deaminase, which breaks down uh, gemcitabine, uh, particularly uh, bacteria that have a long isoform of cytidine deaminase, which they call CDD subscript L. So CDDL um, uh, has a lot of cytidine deaminase and breaks down gemcitabine into uh, an inactive product. Um, and they tested this in a colon cancer model. We don't use a whole lot of gemcitabine for colon cancer. It's a mouse model. So yes, this is not ready for prime time. This is in the laboratory, but it's talking about chemotherapy resistance uh, in a, a fairly easy way to understand, I think. Uh, so I wanted to talk about this. So what the researchers then did, so they kind of showed in a laboratory that, yes, if you have a whole bunch of this bacteria, it can chew up the gemcitabine, and therefore gemcitabine won't work. Well, and they said, well, let's look at pancreatic cancer, a very drug, resist, very drug resistant disease, a disease in which we use a lot of gemcitabine. Uh, and they looked at some pancreatic cancer um, samples from patients with pancreatic cancer. And in three fourths of them, they found bacteria. And the bacteria that has this uh, long isoform of cytidine deaminase is gamma proteobacteria, which is a gram negative. Um, uh, bug that hangs out around the duodenum. And of course, the pancreas uh, enters uh, or connects to the duodenum. So it makes sense that this bacteria could uh, travel upstream the duodenum into the pancreatic cancer uh, cells. They also looked at uh, you know, a smaller sample of pancreas cells from people without pancreatic cancer, and only 15% of them had this bacteria. So this bacterial 
uh, colonization is probably not the right word. It's probably an immunodeficiency. This presence of bacteria in pancreatic, in pancreatic cancer cells uh, was seen in 75%. And we're talking, they tested more than 100 different uh, pancreatic cancer samples. And then what they did uh, in this mouse model was they gave these patients gemcitabine, not patients, these mice, they gave them gemcitabine plus or minus Cipro, which is going to kill these gram-negative bugs. And what they found was that the, the mouse, the mice, the mouses, the mice with uh, pancreatic cancer, or with, with colon cancer, uh, the gemcitabine worked better in the presence of Cipro, with the theory being that Cipro killed the gamma proteobacteria that prevented the bacteria from producing that long isoform of cytonidiaminase, which then could have inactivated gemcitabine. So with Cipro, you have more gemcitabine uh, getting to the tumor. Now, this is not something that we should be doing uh, in a clinic, but maybe, you know, it's something to study in a, in a clinical trial. And if for some reason, you've got a lot of pancreatic cancer patients that are on gemcitabine, and are on Cipro, it'd be a fairly easy retrospective study to go back and look at those who got Cipro or other drugs that would kill gram-negative bugs and those that didn't and see uh, if there are any differences. They need a very large sample to do that, but certainly seems like a relatively uh, straightforward, uh, say, pharmacy residency project. So that's what I have today for Oncopharm for this week, the last week of January 2020. Thanks for listening. You can follow me on Twitter uh, at PharmDTNIP and follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at OncopharmPod. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter.